Welcome everyone to another Bolt from the Blue podcast. This is a special episode in which myself and Ray will talk to Colin Savage about the full detailed report issued by CAS on their decision to overturn the two-year ban from European football on Manchester City handed down by UEFA and the 10 million euro fine given for lack of cooperation. We're also going to talk about the response very quickly thereafter from Der Spiegel and the response from Manchester City to that. So there's a lot to get into. So guys, get comfortable, settle down. Before we get into it, let's start off by introducing the two guys who are going to talk us through this. First of all, we have King of the Kipax writer and City Matters Committee member, Colin Savage. That is Twitter's Prestwich Blue. And that's Colin. Colin, how are you doing and what have you been up to? I'm good, thank you. Obviously, um, I've spent a lot of time reading the judgment. But uh, if you'll indulge me for one moment... A bit of news came through yesterday, which I think you would be interested in as well, is that uh, BBC Radio Manchester legend Jimmy Wagg oh, yeah. has hung up his microphone, certainly on Saturday. Now, if you're listening to this from outside the uh, Manchester area, you might not know who Jimmy is. But basically, for 31 years, Saturday in, Saturday out, and he hasn't missed a Saturday in those 31 years, Jimmy has been the voice of BBC Radio Manchester's Manchester City coverage, but yep. generally the pre-match show and the post-match show, it, it would be Jimmy's dulcet Lancashire tones on the airways. And no match is complete without getting into your car after the game and turning on BBC Radio Manchester and hearing Jimmy announce, if you've got anything to talk about, and I can't do the accent, if you've got anything you want to talk about, about today's game, You've got half an hour to do it, so get on those lines quickly. Get your three penneth in, which is one of his catchphrases. Having done that show with Jimmy a couple of times, it looks very easy to sit in front of a microphone and, and just chat away, because he's a very amiable, nice guy. When you sat there with him, when you've got the headset on that he's got, and you hear everything that's going on in the background, and producers in his ear constantly, getting him to shift segments and bring stuff in and telling him to time things properly and cut things down. And you realise how incredibly difficult it is to do that job and what an incredible professional he is. It just won't be the same when we do finally get back to the games and get back in the car. It won't be the same getting switching the radio on, not hearing Jimmy's voice. So he's still staying on BBC Radio Manchester as a Sunday show. But um, I think we're all going to miss him on a Saturday. So good luck with whatever comes next, Jimmy. Yeah, absolutely. Good luck, Jimmy. I mean, he's uh, been a, just a wonderful professional for all those years. And uh, I, I was on Twitter and I saw um, a recorded video by uh, his guests uh, on the show. You had Peter Barnes there, you had various others there. And, and uh, I think a couple of them said that he deserves three testimonials for what he's done. Over three decades of uh, fantastic service there. So, yep, I don't know if Jimmy will uh, listen to this, but you've been very much appreciated. Okay, thank you very much, Colin. We're going to hear a lot from you. 
but we also have someone else with us. Of course, we have the esteemed producer of City Fan TV on YouTube. That's Ray. Ray, how are you and what have you been up to? Uh, hi, Mike, and hi, uh, Colin. Uh, I'm, I'm very well, very well indeed. I've uh, it's been a very, very busy week regarding Manchester City with news, apart from yesterday, where sadly we weren't playing in that FA Cup final. There's been lots of uh, transfer uh, talk, um, Ferran Torres looks like that one's uh, um, done and dusted. Just waiting for that to be announced. And uh, with uh, Nathan Aki, that came through uh, late on in the week as well. That City had got had a bid accepted for him. And there's lots of other uh, bits of transfer gossip as well. And people asking me, is Aguero going to be fit for the Madrid game or the game after that? And so it's been very, very busy trying to keep up with what's going on, uh, as well as trying to read through all 93 pages of this report. I know, I know. It must be so hard for you, actually, Ray, because um, I think someone was saying, as soon as you release information on Man City, you wake up the next morning and everything's changed. Things are moving fast. We might uh, touch on some of those things at the end of this pod, but guys, that's not exactly what you're here to listen to for this pod. Bolt from the Blue has been inundated with queries about when we're going to have uh, Colin talk about the cast report. So guys, we've heard from... David Conn, we've heard from uh, Stefan Borson and Lloyd at 9320. We've heard from Duncan Castles on his transfer window pod. That was painful to listen to. Many other members of the WhatsApp group of uh, journalists. And now it's uh, Colin's turn and uh, we're going to give him this platform and we're looking forward to it immensely. So Colin, how would you like to begin? Well, I think what I'd like to do is start by just going quickly over the, the timeline because that's quite important to get all this into context and to understand some of the nuances. So obviously we know that Sheikh Mansour, via his Abu Dhabi United group, who we refer to as Adug from now on, took over Manchester City in September 2008. We entered into sponsorship agreements with both Etihad, the airline, and Etisalat, which is the Gulf mobile network provider, in the 2009-10 season. And, and these arrangements were very relevant to what was um, in the judgment. Also, we know that financial fair play kicked in in the 2011-12 season, and the first assessment was carried out on the first two years, which was 2011-12, 2012-13. So the accounts for those two years. We know that we failed that assessment. We know that we were sanctioned. We entered into a settlement agreement with UEFA, and that agreement was signed on the 16th of May 2014, which is another important date. And I say that covered the period 2011-12-2012-13. We exited that settlement agreement in April 2017, I believe, and then everything was quiet until the following year. So uh, October-November 2018, the Spiegel sensationally published a series of articles based on hacked emails. And these hacked emails cast doubt, certainly in the Spiegel's mind, on the substance of the sponsorship arrangements we had with Etihad and Etisalat and how those had been set up and financed. The implication being that they had been financed via Sheikh Mansour's Adug company. And the implication of that was that rather than being commercial sponsorships, which class as revenue, and therefore help us towards meeting financial fair play, that they were actually what's called equity investments, so money put in by Sheikh Mansour, which isn't revenue investment. So the overall implication was we'd lied to UEFA about these arrangements and that we'd overstated our accounts, which is potentially quite a serious offence. As a result of this, UEFA's Financial Control Board Investigatory Chamber, which is the lower chamber, officially commenced investigation in March 2019 to the club. We refused to cooperate with that investigation, as we now know, 
and they recommended on the basis of that a two-season ban from European competition and a 30 million euro fine. That was basically uh, signed, sealed and delivered on the 15th of May 2019, which again, another important date. But quite soon afterwards, we appealed to uh, the Court for Arbitration in Sport in Lausanne in Switzerland. They heard our appeal quite quickly. Obviously, it'd be second week in June. And on the 13th of June, we had the initial verdict that we were cleared of some of the charges, but found guilty of non-cooperation. Basically, the ban had been lifted, but we'd been fined 10 million euros, so 9 million pounds. On Tuesday evening, Tuesday afternoon, CAS released their full judgment with all the reasoning behind it. So it's this that we're going to talk about now, because it gives us a lot more background into what's been going on really the last 10 years really I guess. What I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the charges UEFA brought against us and the specific grounds on which we appealed against those charges. These were serious charges that uh, UEFA had made and I think that if proven amounted to criminal activity. Would you agree with that Colin? Potentially yes. The core of the charge that we basically misstated our income and our, our financial accounts. Uh, And that is a criminal offence under the Companies Acts. If UEFA's charges were to stick, they would have shown, potentially shown, that we would have, say, misstated our revenue quite significantly. Now, that's a criminal offence. One of the things we'll talk about is the burden of proof. But the the burden of proof of proving that is beyond all reasonable doubt, which wasn't the burden of proof in UEFA making this what basically a civil case against us. The other potential implication is that we could have been found guilty by the Premier League or the Premier League could have been opened an investigation to find us guilty of misstating financial evidence to gain access to European competition. So again, that could potentially have led to action from the Premier League. But yeah, but the, probably the most serious part of the charge was potentially, if proven, we could have been found to have committed criminal acts uh, under the Companies Acts and other. Yeah, just uh, one other thing, um, just to set this straight. I know Colin will go into this, but just to um, explode a little myth that's been circulating among City fans for a long time now regarding the admissibility of the emails, because they had been launched out into the public sphere, they were considered admissible. And I think you're, you're going to get into that, Colin. I'm certainly going to get into that, yes. As we said, UEFA brought charges against us, the, the Valentine's Day massacre, so 14th of February this year. The charges were ratified and passed to the judicature chamber, which is the higher chamber, and we found out the results of those. So the core of UEFA's charges against us were basically that we'd disguise equity investment as sponsorship revenue in that Adog Abu Dhabi United Group had funded primarily two of the sponsorships, which was mainly the Etihad one and the Etisalat one. That was the core of the UEFA's CFCB charge against us. The other charge, it wasn't an original charge, but came up when the first charges were made, was that we had failed to cooperate with their investigation. And this basically amounted to failure to produce documents and a failure to produce witnesses at a hearing they conducted on the 19th of April 2019. They'd asked for six or seven witnesses to be sent, and we'd only sent one. So there were two charges. To answer those, we'll come to those in a minute, but to answer those, we did produce all the documents that UEFA agreed were necessary, and we did produce all the witnesses and more at the CAS hearing that UEFA had originally asked for. So we certainly didn't refuse to cooperate with the CAS hearing. When we come to that, perhaps I'll talk about what may have been some of our reasons for refusal to cooperate with UEFA. Okay, so those were UEFA's charges. Those were what we were found guilty of. We had 10 separate points of appeal, and I've summarised those. 
So we'll talk about those and then I'll answer the case against them. So our appeal number one was based on the, the core allegation, which was about the Etihad and Etisalat sponsorships being disguised equity funding is false. That was it. The core allegation is false. Number two was the hacked emails provide no proper factual basis for the adjudicatory chamber's decision. Number three was the case against us is based on inference, whereas the adjudicatory chamber declared it was comfortably satisfied, which is a term we'll come back to, that the documents were evidence of these arrangements. City's number four assertion was that their evidence would clearly demonstrate that Etihad and Etisalat met their sponsorship obligations in full, received the, the valuable rights due to them under those arrangements in full, and that none of them were funded by ADUG. Number five was the case was commercially irrational. And what they meant by that was, why would we let Etihad pay eight million for sponsorship rights that were worth a lot more than that. So UEFA's own view, apparently, according to the documents, was that the Etihad sponsorship arrangements could be valued anywhere between 40 million and 77 million pounds, or euros, I forget which which. So, so basically, why would we give them that for 8 million euros? Number six was that the alleged breaches are in any event settled and they meant that, that they were disposed of as part of the 2014 settlement agreement and in any respect a time barred. Number seven was something a little bit esoteric, but basically it said that the accounting and accrual basis was the basis of the seventh point in our appeal. Didn't see this as particularly relevant. But what this refers to is how we recorded these sponsorships. So there was a lot of noise about we got a lot of money from Etihad in certain years and not, not in other years. And what the uh, accrual basis of accounting says was, basically, if we agreed a four-year contract for X amount, let, let's say it was 55 million a year from Etihad, and over those four years, they paid us 220 million in accordance with the contract, how we took the cash was irrelevant as long as we accounted for it in the right way. So basically, that said, as long as Etihad got exactly the same consideration in each of those four years, we'll have shown it as 55 million rather than recording just the cash flow. So a bit of an esoteric point, but I think it was designed to show that Etihad got an ongoing consideration for their sponsorship money. Point number eight was about the alleged non-cooperation by the club, so the club disputed that. Point number nine was the Club Financial Control Board abused its obligation of due process. So basically UEFA hadn't followed, UEFA CFCB hadn't properly followed its own process, which rendered the findings invalid. And the final point was the proportionality of the sanctions. So they felt we've been punished too heavily. So those were our 10 points of appeal. So they covered really all the major ground. They answered UEFA's points about the sponsorships. They answered UEFA's points about non-cooperation, and they added one or two more of their own. So what I'll do, if you like, uh, unless you've got any questions at this point. Well, Colin, just before you continue, um, could you just settle one thing for us? There have been allegations by certain journalists that uh, City effectively picked two out of the three on the panel. Yeah, I've seen those, of course. And um, it, it was a fairly shameful misrepresentation of what happened. Uh, yeah, good point. Just to explain the way CAS arbitration panels work, Rule 40.2 in their procedure manual says that the participants should ideally agree beforehand on the composition of the panel. And normally, the panel will be made up of either one or three arbitrators. And the standard process appears to be that each party picks one it what it wants to represent it. So uh, and there are a list of approved arbitrators for football under CAS. I think there are about 100 of them. They're not allowed to have any conflict of interest. 
So, you know, we couldn't pick someone who was, say, a City fan or had worked for us or something like that. So the procedure is that each, each of the parties, us in UEFA, we have a cho free choice from that list of who, who sits on the panel. So that's two out of the three catered for. And the other ideal scenario is that the two parties agree on the third, well, the, agree on the chairman of the panel. So we're picking two ordinary arbitrators, and, uh, and we pick this um, Andrew McDougall, uh, who was a Canadian guy based in France, but had done some work for Etihad, which doesn't render him a conflict of interest, clearly. UEFA picked uh, Professor Ulrich Haas, who's a professor of law at uh, Zurich University, and then it was the case of who picked the chairman of the panel. Now, what, what the CAS judgment does say is that Manchester City suggested, that was the word they used, suggests uh, Portuguese judge Rui Botica Santos. Now, UEFA were quite at liberty to object to that, that choice. They were quite at liberty to make an alternative suggestion of their own. But they agreed. They, they agreed that, that Senor uh, Santos would be a suitable person to be chairman. Now, the procedure, in case the parties can't agree on this, is that the CAS president will pick the chair of the panel. But to suggest that City somehow chose two of the three is nonsense. Because to agree on something, one or other has got to suggest it. Now, I don't know if there's any custom where the appellant or, or the respondent has the first pick, has the you know the, the first kind of pick if you like uh, but but basically one name was put forward both parties approved it so it's quite clear uefa weren't railroaded into this uefa had an entirely free choice about whether to agree to uh rui batika santos or not so hopefully that kills that one stone dead okay so i think one of the key points was obviously admissibility of the email. So let's talk about that first. Now, the Portuguese judge in the case of the hacker, Rui Pinto, had directed as part of that case that the emails could not be used in any jurisdiction. Now, obviously, it's very difficult to tell another legal jurisdiction what not to do and what not to do. So, so Kaz had to make... Um, an immediate ruling on the admissibility of the email, because this obviously is fairly crucial. If, if UEFA aren't entitled to use the emails of evidence, then the whole case collapses. And, and what became clear from, from the, cast, the forecast judgment was that UEFA, in opening its initial investigation, had, re had relied solely, solely on the six hacked emails. In fact, it was seven emails and two were stitched together to give a, a somewhat distorted impression of what the emails are trying to say. And that's so six, six seven, emails out of 5.5 million. That's well, seven emails out of 5.5 million, yeah. yeah. And as we've said all along, I, I, I've said it till the cows come home. These emails were all, even before this started, these, or as soon as this was started, these emails were taken out of context and be, were very selective. Uh, and basically, Cas confirmed that. Or, and UEFA confirmed that, you know, six, seven out of 5.5 million. So it was, but it was quite, because they were the, the, the core of the case, uh, beside the non-cooperation, um, th then obviously it was quite important to decide whether they were admissible or not. Kaz took what, what, what to me, I'm not, I'm not a lawyer, but it took to me what, what seemed to be rather a strange view. So Swiss law allows the publication of stolen documents, sorry, the use of stolen documents, if it's considered to be in the public interest of revealing the truth or worse to that effect. So they applied that case to it uh, and decided that on that basis alone, it was uh, correct to allow them to be used, to, to be relied on. But the other basis they um, stated was that um, anyway, they were already in the public domain. Now, now, to me, this is slightly odd because why were they in the public domain? Because they'd been stolen. Now, if, if you kind of take a, a, a kind of 
a relevant analogy, if you like. If I buy something, if I buy a car off eBay or, or, or an advert that I later find to be stolen or a mobile phone that I later found to be stolen, uh, and I didn't know it was stolen at the time, I've not committed any criminal act myself, but um, the owner of that car or phone or other object is entitled to have their property returned to them. And I am out of pocket unless I can get the money back from the person who stole it. You know, there's no criminal, unless they can prove you had criminal intent or knowledge that the, that the um, items were stolen, you, you, there's no criminal issue as regards you buying them in good faith. However, if you buy a car or an laptop or a phone that you suspect or know has been stolen, in the UK anyway, you have committed a criminal offence. And I would imagine the same, pretty much the same applies in Swiss law or any other law. You buy something stolen that you know is stolen and you then knowingly buy it, you have committed a criminal offence. Now, now, if we look at the emails, they've been published in Der Spiegel and it was known to hacked emails. So, so, so to me, it's very odd that UEFA were allowed to rely on the fact that they're in the public domain when they knew they were effectively handling stolen goods, if that makes sense. It does, Colin, but I, I do note that in the, in the document, City always referred to these documents as hacked. But well, when, well, Cass, yeah. when Cass talked about them, they, always, they, they called them leaked. There's quite a big difference, isn't there? Well, City, the, the city word City used and always used in the document was criminally obtained, which I think has more of an impact than hacked. So, so, so that obviously criminal obtained quite specifically points to a criminal offence having been used to obtain these documents, which, which we now know. Uh, and incidentally, um, th there was a note in the CAS judgment that explains how these were obtained. So it would appear someone at City opened an email they thought came from UEFA, but in fact wasn't. It was a very clever, uh, spear, what they call spear phishing attempt. Now, this, this introduced a piece of malware which allowed the hackers to gain access to City's full email um, library, basically. So again, that's the first indication, first proper indication of um, how that these emails came to be hacked. Now, now I know, I think I mentioned in the last uh, pod we did on this, that uh, Martin Seeger of the Times reported that a source of the city had told him they were convinced the Qataris had done it. It was obviously a very clever attempt, but that's the way many of these things, you know, we open an email, click on a document that seems genuine, uh, click or click on a link, um, when perhaps a cursory examination of the uh, sender of the email and, and, a, and a proper look at the uh, their their email address would tell you it wasn't genuine so yeah so there was a there was a complete divergence of views between city and the cfcb on these emails and and, and again cas came down on the leaked emails which i think was wrong um you know they could have found perhaps a better way of expressing it now, now the funny thing about this was if there's anything funny about it was that city still deny the um veracity of these emails so uh, at the time UEFA investigated them, we'll come on to this in a minute, they refused to confirm or deny, well, confirm or deny, well, confirm that the emails were valid, but were true emails. And they did all the way up to the CAS hearing. And, but what they came up with was quite almost, for those who watch Yes Minister, Yes Prime Minister, uh, a kind of a form of words that I think Sir Humphrey Appleby would have been quite proud of. They made no omission that the emails were genuine. But they would presume they would sorry proceed on the basis on the assumption that they were. So we don't you know. So we we'll say we're not saying these emails are genuine, but we'll pretend they are for the basis of this investigation and appeal, which I thought was quite funny. But basically, yeah, the, the Swiss court decided on two grounds. One of which 
was was probably reasonable that they uh, the emails were in the public domain. Uh, so the emails were releasing the emails within the public interest or using the emails in the public interest. Arguable, but, but but fair. The second was they were ordered in the public domain, which I don't think was a very fair uh, way of doing it. And I think Colin also, it's pretty clear that uh, City knew that this was likely to be rejected. Um, they'd obviously, you know, considered this and they, they, they probably prepared for the likelihood that it wasn't going to be as simple as having the whole case thrown out on, the, on those grounds right at the beginning. So um, they, they... Yeah, it was a possibility they, yeah. that that would be rejected. This kind of has to be tested. Uh, you know, each use of uh, well, the Swiss law, which the hearing was heard under, you know, it, th these documents have to meet certain tests. And it was quite, they might have, they would have known the possibility that their claim would have been rejected, but it was well worth, you know, asking the CAS panel to rule on the test. Yeah, worth a try. Not ask, you don't get. Well, yeah, that's right. It was, you know, City maintained all along that these were criminally obtained. There's a legal principle which we talked about before, the fruit of the poison tree. There was the judgment of the Portuguese judge in the Rio Pinto case, uh, which was quoted in, in the document. So, yeah, uh, you know, in any legal argument, you, you, you'll make arguments that, that may or may not be rejected. But, um, but actually, you know, I, I'm pleased that the, uh, the argument was rejected because th then actually the case could be considered. The city wanted this case heard, really. Um, they wanted this case heard in front of an independent panel. They've always said that. And having been heard, as we'll talk about towards the end, it was comprehensively, UEFA's case was comprehensively rejected. So, so, so okay, we'll, we'll go through the, 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 the 10 points, really. So, so as, as we said, number point, point, 10, point one was the core allegation about uh, Etihad sponsorships actually being disguised equity funding by uh, Abu Dhabi United Group was false. Now, that was quite an, an interesting one. I mean, that was the core of it. So we know now that that, that, that was found in our favour. But, but there's a lot more to that, which I'll talk about. So point two, number two was that the hacked emails provide no proper factual basis for the judicatory chamber's decision. Now, again, this was an interesting one. Because, again, there was, there was kind of what seemed to me a contradictory, couple of contradictory parts in, in the CAS judgment. On the one hand, CAS said, yeah, based on these emails... Uh, the adjudicatory chamber, or the CFCB, were quite entitled to open a, had justification for opening an investigation. But actually, when they opened the investigation, and when it all went to CAS, CAS said there wasn't enough evidence in there, you know, it, it, it wasn't enough evidence in there to, to bring home their case. So again, they're saying one thing, yeah, you know, it seems clear that there's a potential, um, something potentially need to, needs to be investigated quite seriously. But no, yeah, there was nothing in there which gave you grounds, which gave grounds. We'll talk about that again, um, perhaps in a minute. So again, a little bit of contradiction in there. And it's, and it's perhaps moving on to the third point, which kind of links all that in, is the case against us was based on inference, whereas the adjudicatory chamber declared it was, and again, used the phrase, comfortably satisfied that the documents were evidence of these arrangements. And this led to a whole series of arguments about what was the burden of proof in this case, in this appeal? City had asked for the burden of proof to be set higher. Now, obviously, a civil case and a criminal case, as we've alluded to, are different. So in a criminal case, um, guilt has to be beyond all reasonable doubt. 
in a civil case, it, it's generally on what we call the balance of probabilities in the UK, or in England anyway. Whereas in Swiss law, I, I think they use the term comfortably satisfied, which is pretty much analogous to on the balance of prob probabilities. So, you know, there has to be a comfortable argument that what someone is alleging is actually true. Uh, and City, City had said, uh, 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 there was an argument about this, uh, uh, and Kaz ruled that City's point about a higher standard of proof was not necessary, but the standard of comfortable, comfortably satisfied was the one that would be applied. So, you know, everything has to be judged on that basis. So, so that was the outcome of, of that. So, um, so we get on to point four now, which is the, really the, the core of this, uh, well, the core of one of UEFA's main allegations. And cities, City maintained that the evidence clearly demonstrates, to use their words, that Etihad and Etisalat met their sponsorship obligations in full, received valuable rights in respect of them, and that none of them were funded by Abidab United Group. So Sheikh Mansour, Abidab United Group. Now, there were two sides to this, and we'll take them separately. So we'll take the Etisalat one first, because there's a number of points around that one. So, so, so both arrangements were signed in... 2009-2010 season. I think we signed the Etisalat one first and then the Etihad one. So late in 2009 we signed Etisalat. Early in 2010 we, we signed the Etihad agreement. And, and David Conn, uh, shamefully, as he's a trained lawyer, tried to allude to the fact that the contract wasn't signed until 2015 and he used the term it was backdated. As a trained lawyer he should know that often in complex contracts, you sign what's known as a heads of, heads of agreement term sheet, which is basically a, an agreement, that a broad agreement that the contract will go ahead and, and a broad agreement as to the basis on which it will go ahead. And that's legally binding. Uh, and the first terms of agreement with Etisalat was signed in, say, I think February 2010. The full contract wasn't signed. We went through a number of renegotiations with Etisalat which varied the terms on which we provided the sponsorship. So, you know, perimeter advertising, program advertising, all that sort of stuff. Um, the final contract was indeed not signed until 2015, but it related to a terms of agreement, which was agreed in 2012. Uh, and UEFA tried to make great play of the fact that, um, that, that what, some of these weren't signed and City countered with the fact that, well, actually, uh, quite a lot of their sponsorship agreements weren't necessarily signed by both parties, but all were legally, but considered legally binding uh, and were put into action. So th th the specific case around Etisalat concerned payments made under those agreements in 2012-2013. Whereas Etihad, a little bit confusing from, and I don't quite understand it, I can make a guess at this, uh, Etihad, it, it talked about the Etihad, the relevant period, and that was... 2012-13, missing out 2014-15. Uh, and basically the contract with Etihad was that they would pay us something like £220 million over that period, the, the four-year period, but only three named, uh, for relevant sponsorship arrangements. I don't understand why, well, I don't, there's nothing specific as to why 2014-15, but from what I think happened is that Etihad made an arrangement to provide us with a sum of money over a four-year period. So it wasn't named specific year, but some of that money, for cash flow reasons, was advanced. So let's take an argument that we agreed a contract for 55 million over four years, so that's 220 million in total. Now, let's say we took 70 million in those three relevant years 
and we only took 10 million in the 2014 year, which isn't named. Because a lot of this revolved around what did Etihad pay, which was the 8 million, and what did someone else pay, which was the 59.5 million. So, so let's presume that these other 59.5 million payments were actually paid in those three named years, but Etihad only paid the 8 million in the 2014-15. That's, that, that's the only reason I could think of why, again, why the sponsorship was, was detailed in that way, with three, three years named and one year in the middle missed out. Again, um, I'll throw Mr. Castle. Or, or, no, it was it Nick Harris? But um, they're all one, aren't they? They all merge into one. Um, Harris, the two Harrises and Castles and Delaney and all the rest. Um, like a hydra, isn't it? With all, whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. Eight it, it's like a snake with different heads. Mm, yeah. um, you know, the guarding the gates to Hades or whatever it was. Anyway, let's leave them aside. Uh, I think it was Nick Harris tried to claim that um, this sponsorship agreement was only over three years, therefore you divided 220 million by three. I think you divided 220 million by four, giving 55 million a year on average. Uh, but the, in one of those years, we didn't bring forward any cash. So basically, we called off cash, but not necessarily in a linear fashion, if that makes sense. And, and the Etihad arrangement was paid, as we say, th there were two separate payments for this, one for 8 million, one for 59.5 59 million. And UEFA presented that as proof uh, that there were someone else paying the Etihad money. Okay, now, now City were able to produce evidence and witnesses, including uh, Sheikh Mansour himself got involved in this. I thought wrongly that Sheikh Mohammed, uh, the Crown Prince, had, had testified, uh, but I, I'd made a kind of a, a wrong, an incorrect assumption. So they got the former chief executive Etihad, the former president, the former commercial chief operating officer, the former uh, commercial director, all to all to tes testify that Etihad paid these arrangements in full, and that the difference between the two payments was that Etihad paid 8 million out of a marketing their own marketing budget but the, this 59.5 million came from what they call central sources and they described central sources as um, shareholders um, uh, bankers other uh, finance providers uh, and any other third party uh, who, who they could have got money from so so basically 8 million was marketing the rest came from central sources now we've had the discussion before you know that this document exists that claims that the abu dhabi executive council largely funded or fully funded the the etihad arrangement um I, actually that was specifically or, or, or there was an allusion to that in the um cas document which said that they didn't think that was the case so th that's fine so so uh, in view of the number of witnesses, uh, and, and City were able to provide accounting evidence that they'd issued Etihad with invoices for the relevant amounts. They were able to show the flow of cash through their accounts. Uh, and most importantly, um, Sheikh Mansour testified that he had not authorized, not made or authorized any payments to any sponsor from Abu Dhabi United Group at any time. And that was even backed up by... Um, an investigation Ernst and Young had done into all payments that uh, Abu Dhabi United Group had made of £250,000 and over. So the intention, it wasn't an audit as such, a full audit, but the intention was if any large payments had gone out, then this, this investigation, which we'd asked for and paid for, by the way, would have found those payments. Uh, and the investigation came back quite clearly that they hadn't found any such payments. And even the total of payments under 250k came to um, around 21 million 
and that would be, not have been enough, even in total, to satisfy the alleged um, payments, which were somewhere in the region of 175 million. So we defeated that case quite clearly, quite quite clearly. Uh, the weight of evidence um, Kaz basically said we'd have to assume, if we were to take UEFA's case, that these were funded by ADUG, we'd have to presuppose that there was a conspiracy to do, though. There was no evidence of that. That a number of key witnesses, you know, in public positions of trust within Abu Dhabi lied. There was no evidence of that. And there was no evidence in the email that any third party had been involved. Because it was, apart from a, a mention of Arbar in one of those seven, six emails, they were all internal emails. So again, that was another finding from CAS that, that detailed as to why they felt UEFA hadn't made their case on the uh, ADUG funding of the sponsorship agreements. So again, that, that, that was fairly, fairly clear. The Etisalat one was slightly different, and it touches on another point, which is about the, 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 the time barring and the settlement agreement. So, so I'll go on to those first, and I'll come back to Etisalat. So City had made a point, and that was kind of point six in their submission to CAS was that the alleged breaches are in any event settled, which is referring to the 2014 agreement, and time barred. So there's two sides to that. Did the settlement agreement represent form final um, closure on this case? Uh, and basically on, on this, CAS said, well, no, it didn't, because um, there was nothing in the agreement, and, and the text wasn't published, I don't think, but there was nothing in the agreement which suggested it was a full and final settlement. So, so basically, they felt that uh, UEFA were entitled to revisit the uh, period covered by the settlement agreement if, if new evidence came to light that suggested there was a material inaccuracy in what we told them. Uh, and, and they decided that based on what Mr. Spiegel emails have said, and we're back to this case of, case of were they, you know, should, should UEFA have, have relied on them, yes or no. But basically, on the base of those emails, yes, there was a case for going back to the, that settlement agreement, and there was nothing in the settlement agreement that, that, that would stop them doing that. So, so that was number one. So yes, they could go back and reopen it. The second one was the time barring. This was an interesting debate. So UEFA's own rules, the FFP rules, say that um, prosecution of any alleged breaches is time barred after five years. And, and, and probably one of the major things that's come out of this is that clause may get tightened up a bit because this led to... Um, an argument between City and UEFA on, on what that meant. So obviously, five years is five years. But, but the crucial argument was when, when was the day? And I think we've had these discussions before. Stefan Borson on 9320 has been over it um, in, in excruciating detail. But we've looked at it from a, when did this start and therefore when does the five years end? So we know, I talked about this earlier, we know that the settlement agreement was concluded on the 16th of May 2014. We know that UEFA, um, CAS issued their, sorry, no, got that right. So the case was passed to, from the investigative danger to the adjudicator of on the 15th of May. So that's five years less one day after the original settlement agreement was found. And the CAS ruling made clear that UEFA knew that date was significant because that's the latest date they could have applied the five-year statute of limitations. So, so we've always thought of it as going forward. So we find a date, when did the breach occur? Uh, and were, were UEFA entitled to bring these charges because they were outside the five-year time limit? And Kaz went about it a slightly different way, which is quite clever, as legal people tend to do. They said, well, hang on, you brought the charges on the 15th of May 2019. So what does that include and what does that exclude? Uh, and, and basically, they decided that 
the, the passing of the case to the adjudicatory chamber, after the investigation had been done and the charges had been laid, classed as prosecution. So basically that, that was the end of the five-year time limit. Anything that had occurred before five years, so basically anything that occurred prior to the 16th of May 2014 was therefore time barred. Does that, that make sense? Have I explained that adequately? Because it's quite important. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. You're absolutely right. There was a considerable debate about um, the start and end points of the yeah. five years, but I think that ruled a lot of the accusations to Man City about the Eddie Salat well, yeah, I'm coming thing to out, out, out of it completely. And that's right. what so a lot of the journalists was, were hanging their hats on, weren't, weren't they? What was the impact of this decision? Well, basically anything, um, anything that occurred after 15th of May 2014 was in scope. Anything that occurred before that was out of scope. So our 2014 accounts were filed after the 15th of May, 16th of May 2014. So they were in scope. The 2013 accounts weren't and therefore the 2012 accounts weren't, therefore they were out of scope. UEFA actually made a very bizarre argument in relation to this. They said, well, because when you put your 2014 accounts in, because uh, I've said before, FFP ran on a three, started off on a two-year basis, 2012-2014, then moved on to a, a three-year basis, 2012-2013-2014. And UEFA made a rather bizarre and hopeful argument that because 2014 was in scope, Therefore, 2012 and 2013 should also have been in scope because we had to provide those comparative figures to meet financial fair play. And, and, and Kaz said this was, a non this was nonsense because those figures had already been supplied and we really had to take the date that they were first applicable to as being the date they were applied. So you couldn't rely on this. Otherwise, you could go back basically seven years. Yep, yep. And, and that wasn't on. That, that basically broke UEFA's own um, rule on the statute of limitations being five years. Were they just trying to clutch at any straw they could find? Yes. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, but, uh, and I'll tell you why. Let, let's go back to this now and go back to Etisalat. Because when UEFA had originally examined our books in 2014, they found that the payment of the Etisalat sponsorship had come from Abu Dhabi United Group. So there was an audit trail from Abu Dhabi United Group to City, but an audit raised, uh, an invoice raised on behalf of Etisalat. Now, City's explanation at the time was that Etisalat didn't have the cash, had agreed to this, but didn't have the cash. Therefore, uh, Adog fronted it, and that um, in 2015, I think, Etisalat had settled up with Adog. So basically, it's lend us the money, shaky, you know, we're a bit skint, and we'll pay you back when we get it back. You know, we feel about when we got the money, and that's what happened. And City certainly suggested uh, it, it's in the CAS judgment that City su um, suggested that the adjudicatory chamber were happy with this arrangement. Whether they were or not, I don't know, but City suggested that they'd spoken to the adjudicatory chamber about this arrangement and they had accepted it. So, yes, Etisala funding had appeared to come from Abu United Group, but Abu Dhabi United Group had later claimed the money back from Etisala, and therefore, in the kind of when you look at this end to end, Etisala had paid for their sponsorship and received consideration for it. But those are the allegations because Etisala made those payments, the, the disputed payments 2012 2013, those were time barred. But it seems that it doesn't matter because City and the adjudicatory chamber at the CFCB had already agreed that that was a settled matter. 
again, any journalist trying to say we got on a technicality because some stuff was time barred. Yes, some stuff was time barred, including the earliest payments from, um, so anything prior to 2014 from Etihad. But we know the principle of the Etihad arrangement. So nothing went on before 2014 that went on after 2014, as far as we can see. So that, that's not relevant. The Etisalat payments were relevant. They were time barred. CAS couldn't look at those. But it seems that City and the, the Adjudicatory Chamber had agreed that that was a settled matter and therefore not up for grabs. So this whole nonsense of time barring, hiding a whole can of worms, again, seems to be nonsense. So that's covered, that covered those. So we're then on to the, the other biggie. Let, let's take them a slightly different order. So what City claimed was the, that the CFCB had abused its obligation of due process. So basically they'd not finished their investigation prior to uh, handing over, handing it over to the adjudicatory chamber. And um, this was a, an interesting one. There, there was a whole set of discussions about whether Etihad and Etisalat were related parties or not. I, I, I thought this was a slightly bizarre argument for City to hang their hat on because, again, I've explained before, uh, City were arguing they weren't related parties. And, and this is, has an impact, again, on their financial statements because they're not declared as related parties in the financial statements. So City has maintained all along that uh, Etihad, Etisalat were not related parties, which implies that UEFA were trying to imply that they were UEFA-related parties. But if UEFA had succeeded in proving they're related parties, it's kind of a, a win and a loss because then it means the whole issue, as we said before, of who funds these, as long as they're at fair value. And uh, one of the key phrases in the CAS document was that it is accepted that Etisalat and Etihad were not related parties and that they were transacted at arm's length at fair value. So that one's off the table. But if UEFA were trying to say, if UEFA were trying to claim that they were related parties, then that completely undermines their case about who funded them. Because if they were related parties and the transaction were at fair value, which they seem to have been, uh, then it's irrelevant who funds them. They can be funded by related parties. But it's quite possible City were trying to um, avoid a little bit of embarrassment in this respect. And, you know, there was still a chink of light into this accusation that the financial statements were, were incorrect. Now, now, as you know, I've said all along that perhaps City's way out of this would have been to say, for financial fair play purposes only, we'll accept, according to UEFA's definition, that Etihad is a related party and then stuff it. It doesn't matter who funds it as long as you agree it's fair value. But we didn't go down that path and, and it's now all been put to bed. So, so that was seemed to be the key, and there was stuff about the leaks as well, of course. That, uh, but, but Kens rejected those, both of those. It rejected the leaks one on the grounds that the decision had been made anyway. Um, again, uh, some of those leaks came out so quickly, but you know when you've got a, 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 pr a process which is bound by confidentiality, to me it doesn't matter if the decisions have been made. Uh, it, it's confidential, so we know that Tarek Panja. In the New York Times, we know that um, I think the Sun was mentioned. I can't remember who the third party was um, that was mentioned. But anyway, th they were leaking stuff. But but Kens decided that those decisions had been made, so they weren't leaking um, kind of ongoing discussions. They were leaking firm decisions. So they rejected it on that basis. They rejected the the, the due process on, on again on, on on another interesting basis, which was basically that forget what happened in the past. This appeal, this, this CAS appeal, is now a new process. So anything that UEFA may or may not have done in their handling of it is off the table. You're starting with a, a clean slate. So, so nothing UEFA has done or not done 
has prejudiced this hearing. So forget about that. that that's not a problem. So, so again, it was one of those where they found against us, but it didn't matter because, um, you know, this hearing started here. So it's a bit of a strange one, again, for City to protest on. So let's go back to the biggie and the one we, we actually did get final, which was the non-cooperation by the club. So, so when UEFA CFCB turned up, um, they formally opened their investigation. I think we said in um, late in March 2019, the emails having appeared uh, a few months prior to that, late in 2018. So when UEFA turned up, they demanded certain things. They demanded certain emails. Uh, they demanded emails that might be linked to these emails. They demanded to talk to key witnesses, uh, and we refused, basically. And, and that was the basis of the non-cooperation charge. Now, again, it's made clear in the CAS documents that City weren't doing this capriciously. They weren't doing it obstruct for, to be purely obstructive, but they were doing it on legal advice. So their external legal advisors, and presumably the internal ones as well, but buoyed up by advice but by the external legal advisors, which are either Pinsent Masons or Freshfields, or both, um, suggested that they had no, there were no grounds for them to cooperate on. So again, it doesn't particularly go into detail on this, but I'm guessing from City's point of view, this was on the fruit of the poison tree principle, i.e. these emails were hacked and therefore not admissible. The email that, that UEFA made inferences from them which weren't um, justifiable, that they had no right therefore to even confirm that the emails were genuine and therefore release what might have been genuine emails. And they certainly appear to have thought that um, Monsieur Latour was on a fishing expedition in asking for the a whole series of unspecified emails, which might or might not have been connected to some of the emails published. Uh, and I think, you know, in, in, legal, in legal proceedings, this process of discovery, you're allowed a fairly wide remit, sorry, wide remit, but you're not allowed to go on a fishing expedition to try and find anything that might be potentially um, useful to your case in some way or other. Now, one of the criticisms of CAS was City could have ended this by giving everything to the adjudicatory chamber that, hit, that UEFA had, the investigatory chamber had asked for. Now, again, we don't know why City took this view at this point. Uh, I, I would suggest they had solid legal grounds to do so, which just make you wonder about whether they'll appeal. But but they didn't choose to do so. But they did did do so when it came to the the cash hearing, of course, um, which was basically a year later. So cash were quite critical on that on that point. But uh, yeah, you know, th there's nothing too much in the document which really gives the background to that, other than that we said no, they asked, we said no, they asked again, we said no. Um, <laughs> Uh, and they dropped an Article 56 charges, charging us on the basis of that. Can I ask you a question here, Colin, then? You can. Do, would UEFA have ever seen these documents? So City refused to give them to UEFA. They give them to CAS. CAS have inspected them. Would UEFA have ever seen them then? They've never seen them, I take it. Uh, UEFA have seen our evidence now, yes. Yeah, okay. That's what I because, wondering. I mean, we had to provide documentation to CAS on our in our you know to support our appeal and UEFA had to supply documentation to support their case so yes each side saw each other's submissions uh but there was still a dispute about a run this is very interesting actually it takes me on to another interesting point there was still a dispute we, we provide virtually everything that UEFA had originally asked for but but to CAS not to UEFA I mean I'm guessing there was a lot of suspicion uh at City as to UEFA's motives 
and there was certainly no intention of, of giving UEFA the ammunition to shoot them with. So, so basically, UEFA's turned up with a few gun parts and said, hang on, we need the rest of the parts and we need the bullets to go in this gun to shoot you with. Well, you know, the answer was only going to be no. And the answer, again, let's stress this, was on legal advice. It wasn't just, you know, no, and our solicitors were saying, hang on, you, you know, you better tell them. You know, because if you're sat in a police interview room with your solicitor, the solicitor might say to you as a suspect, uh, I think you better say, you know, you better answer that question. And he might say, you better not, you know, I don't think you should answer that question but there are times when a solicitor will say to their client i think you should answer that question hey why we didn't answer uefa's question we can only guess that you know whether it's suspicion of uefa's motives whether we were we we, we um it, it was purely on the, few, the fruit of the poison tree principle we simply don't know but but i'm sure that will all come out in time in, in some way but yeah we gave all the evidence apart from one run of emails and this was quite interesting it, well, a couple of interesting points uefa had asked as i say for they wanted all my emails which were associated with one of the emails or other, one or two of the emails uh, highlighted in the Spiegel. So, so, so basically what, what you might see is a fishing expedition. Give us everything that might be related to this email. City's counter argument was, well, no, we're not going to do that because it would take a hell of a long, you know, to, to do that properly would take a hell of a length of time to actually go through. And we, you know, they've pinched five and a half million documents, emails, documents we've got to go through all those documents potentially and find anyone that might be associated with the email in question and and, and we said we weren't prepared to do that it was going to take a lot of time now one point that Kaz did, did, did make that was critical of UEFA which leads me on to the next point was UEFA asked for that and we said no UEFA asked for that a second time we said no UEFA could have asked for that and said okay we'll wait but UEFA didn't uh, because obviously it was in our interest to bring this case as quickly as possible. But UEFA has said to CAS they wanted to be in a position where a decision was made prior to July the 10th, which presumably would have been the cutoff date for entry into next season's Champions League. Now, you can understand our interest in wanting this cleared as quickly as possible. Because, I mean, this kind of brings us into the hateful eight, non-sinine, whatever you want to call them, who wrote to UEFA requesting that um, any attempt to um, suspend the ban should be denied. In the end, we didn't make any attempt to suspend the ban. So that whole argument was completely moot. Uh, and I think they made a complete fool of themselves in doing that. But, you know, some of our enemies showed their hand in that, which is never a bad thing, really. But we never made any application to spend it, which was, I think, a calculated gamble in some ways, but one that paid off in the end. So, so you could say you can understand us wanting to bring this to a, to a head as quick as possible. But then you think, why why were UEFA so keen to do this? Because Kaz said UEFA wanted, as I say, Kaz wanted uh, UEFA wanted a decision to be made on this case prior to July the tenth, which just about got there. But because that was obviously. Um, prior to the seasons all finishing. So the question is, were you way for interest, more interested in kind of striking a blow or more interested in getting to the truth? And that for me is one of the most interesting things, which almost hasn't been talked about by anyone. I've not listened to Stefan on this, so he might have mentioned it, but UEFA seem more keen to do this quickly and strike a blow by getting us banned from the CL than to actually make their case stick 100%. So they've got these seven stroke six, seven, two doctored emails, six emails they're relying on, purely relying on, 
they hoped we would shoot ourselves in the foot and give them all the evidence we need. We didn't get there. Even when we went to CAS and, and we still say we wouldn't provide this run of emails, they said, OK, that's fine. We're happy with that. Why? Why were they so keen to make this case stick? Why were they make, make so keen to make this case, to get this case through so early? I mean, you know, we can look at this in all sorts of different ways, can't we? Perhaps we can talk about that. My, my feeling is potentially that, you know, if they don't get it through, then natural justice means we have to take part in the Champions League next season. That gives us income. Um, and that gives us lots of time, potentially lots of time to, to um, defend this case. On the other hand, if they if they hit us quickly, they get they get this um, they get our appeal overturned. We we get a two game game ban. We've said before, haven't we? That cripples us for a number of seasons, not just for two seasons. It potentially cripples us for a number of seasons to come, both in the short and the longer term. So, I look at UEFA's desire to reject what they thought was crucial evidence to get this done quickly as a calculated risk to strike a blow. To kind of land, one, land a blow on us while we weren't looking, almost, you, you might call it. Knowing that if they left it any longer, their chances might be we would potentially survive that. So that, that's kind of very interesting for me. I say no one else has really picked up on that. Why were UEFA so keen to see this through so quickly and prepared to uh, forego what they clearly saw as key evidence to achieve that? Quite could it have been bizarre, in my view. We're, we're pressurising them to, to move well, quickly. You know? Yeah, exactly. That, 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 that's skullduggery in the background. That, that's what I take from this. Yeah, maybe being Tim Foyle hat time, can but I, that's I, what I, I take from this. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if my years are right. Can I suggest, I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, just, uh, I've not thought about this before, Colin, but can I suggest that some teams that might not have been in the top four oh, yeah. um, needed City to be kicked out so that if they finish fifth, or sixth, or whatever, you know, because I think they were six at the time, that would give them a route into the Champions League, which they needed, um, because otherwise they'd lose maybe 25 million. Yeah, that's a great point, right? Yeah. And they'd lose the Champions League money, and that would, that could have crippled, it would have, if United had not gotten the Champions League this season, it would have semi-crippled them, because they're already taken out a £140 million loan, because uh, that's what, they're, they're losing a lot of money from um, match day and everything else. So, it could easily, in my small mind be somebody just obviously looking out for their own interests I mean it's not as if Man United have got any body in UEFA uh, that used to be their chief executive or anything um, no, no, that's no. fighting their cause or, or a head of communications or a head of legal no. at UEFA all of whom were actually United employed that's a brilliant point right I, I hope I take my hat off to you. I hadn't actually thought of that but yes UEFA were more keen to make this stick quickly than make it stick properly uh, and in fact, just to, just to uh, kind of round this off, in terms of the alleged no non-cooperation, obviously we were found guilty of that, but basically on two grounds. One, we didn't provide the witnesses that UEFA asked for in the, in the April of 19 investigation. Now, interestingly, um, Omar Barada had said we weren't allowed to present our case, but, but the CAS document suggests we were given an opportunity to present our case, but we didn't. We only sent Ferran Soriano to that meeting, not the, the other five or six people they'd asked for. Uh, and the other one was the failure to provide the documents that UEFA had asked for. But we provided everything to CAS. Everything that UEFA had asked for that we'd not provided, that CAS agreed that we were guilty of, we provided to CAS. So again, uh, you know, someone has said City accepted this uh, settlement in full. Uh, I, I've not seen that particularly. Um, 
I did hear a whisper that they might be thinking about an appeal depending on what was in the judgment. And that was after the, the initial decision came out. And, and it wouldn't shock me totally. The city may decide to like, let's sleep in dog's lines, take it on the chin. But it wouldn't shock me if city were to appeal on those grounds because they obviously thought they had good grounds for not cooperating in the first place. And eventually they did cooperate. So everything we've been fined 10 million euros for, and the reason UEFA proposed that fine was um, it had to be seen as a serious deterrent to other clubs who, who might be who might not cooperate in future. So it couldn't just be a slap on the wrist. And because we were rich, a rich club, despite the fact we've had no money in for three months, like most other clubs, um, it had to be a serious slap on the wrist. So hence the 10 million. If it had been Bournemouth, it might have been 100,000 euros or something like that. But, but because it was us, it was 10 million euros. So it'd be interesting to see what we, we do about that. Um, but basically that was, um, there was another interesting bit actually, finally. We had asked that if we were found in breach of any of this, that we wanted to make an, another written submission. And Kaz said there was no point uh, in, in doing this. So basically this was irrelevant and there, were, there had no intention of allowing that. So um, we, we don't know what that written submission would have been. It might have been something very, very crucial. It might be something about finances. I don't know. But, um, but basically, I mean, let, let's go back through these 10 and really sum them up. So the core allegation about Etihad Etihad's Etisalat sponsorships being disguised equity funding was false. That, that was our, our assertion was correct. The hacked emails provide no proper factual basis for the adjudicatory chamber's decision. CAS found in our, our favour on that one. The, uh, and again mentioned, that one of the things CAS mentioned was that uh, UEFA were entitled to draw an inference from these emails, but just because something was written in an email didn't, th didn't mean it, was, it had happened or would happen. So, so one of the emails highlighted was from 2010, before even financial fair play had been introduced. Uh, and the point that Kaz made quite correctly was, City made, that was they were discussing an arrangement of funding by Abu Dhabi United Group, which wasn't actually illegal at that point under, under FFP. So, you know, to, to show that email, uh, and Kaz made the point that, no, it wasn't, the first two payments weren't illegal, wouldn't have been illegal because it was a quite proper arrangement because FFP wasn't in place. The third one might have been illegal under financial fair play, but you've got no evidence that anything, you haven't got the evidence that nothing changed in the meantime. So um, again, that was one of the grounds that, that, that Kaz found these, these six emails, seven, say seven really, um, were, were um, not enough to find their case, was that just because it says something in an email, Someone might be asking a question, and I think I made this point. Uh, whoever it was asking what the flow of funds was, was it Adug, um, Sponsor, City, or Adug, whatever the chain was, we never saw the response to that. We never said, no, 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 it's not coming from Adug, or if it is coming from Adug, the sponsor is Sponsor Adug City. You know, so we never saw the response to that, um, which kind of proves Kaz's point. So, so, um, so the case... The emails provided no proper factual basis for the AC's decision. Yes, we're right on that one. The case against us is based on inference, uh, whereas the uh, adjudicated chamber declared it was comfortably satisfied that the documents were evidence of these arrangements. Again, it, it found it was comfortably satisfied that the documents weren't evidence of these arrangements. So that's three out of three we've won. The evidence clearly demonstrates that Etihad and Etisalat met their sponsorship obligations in full. Again, that, that's another one we get a tick in the box for. The case is commercially irrational. Um, again, 
Cas uh, frowned against us on that one, but it didn't matter because that 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 was kind of rendered irrelevant by the fact that Cas found that uh, Etihad paid their full sponsorship agreement and they got full sponsorship rights for that one. So we weren't giving them something for nothing. Anyway, so so number five goes completely. They found against us, but has no relevance whatsoever. Number six, the alleged breach breaches are in any event settled and and time barred. Well. Um, Obviously, we know that Kaz found for the first part of that that they weren't settled. So again, we lost that. And but the some were time barred, but the rest weren't. So so we 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 sort of lost on that. But but what he did was allow Kaz to look at some of these arrangements and found that they didn't break any rules. So again, we kind of lost that one, but it was ultimately led to a win. So you know, it's taking one step back and two step forwards. Accounting and the accrual counting basis. It, that wasn't even examined. So, um, but basically, it falls under the yes, we did everything properly heading. Uh, the alleged non-cooperation by the club. This is the only significant point that Kaz found for UEFA and against us. The, the CFCB abused its obligation on due process. Again, Kaz said it hadn't, but that didn't matter because they were now the process and the pro proportionality of the sanction. And again, Kaz um, removed the ban uh, and reduced the fine by two thirds. So. So a little bit of a win for UEFA, but mainly a win for us on that. So UEFA charged us under seven different articles of financial fair play, and only on one of those, Article 56, which was non-cooperation, and the only charge they, bought, they brought after they tried to speak to us, so when it went to the adjudicatory chamber, they brought this charge of non-cooperation. So it wasn't one of the original charges they approached us for in um, March 2019 because they hadn't approached us for cooperation. So on every substantive charge that the wafer brought against us, we succeeded in um, succeeding in our appeal. So if anyone's got any questions, and, and oh, so one last point. Uh, again, we said um, this, uh, people like Barney Rowney were tweeting uh, FFP RIP. Uh, and, and, and a few commentators who should know better were saying this is the death of financial fair play. Quite clearly from the judgment isn't. But what, what it does show actually works in UEFA's favour because it, it does show that there are certain uh, clauses and, and things in there that uh, they actually need to tighten up to make them more legally watertight because there were uh, stuff about this five-year limitation. It wasn't clear. There was stuff about perhaps the non-cooperation where, where Article 56, which is very widely written, so maybe there are challenges to that. It, um, so, so, but the core financial fair play, anyone saying it renders financial fair play uh, inoperable um, is absolutely wrong because what it showed is that financial fair play, um, basically, yeah, well, well we, we, we've not even challenged the basis of financial fair play. We, as I've said before, we've challenged this on legal and accounting basis, not on the core uh, uh, rationale for financial fair play and the core requirements, the break-even requirement. We've met all those. We've no intention of trying to breach those. We've not used any underhand method to breach those. Um, and, and UEFA may want to go away and look at tightening them up, but but it, it has shown there are one or two uh, loose wordings within the regulations, uh, and and that's the best that UEFA got got out of that in terms of um, the death of financial fair play. Is it at this point we go get in there, city, get in. <laughs> I mean, well, yes, a, fa a fairly comp. Whatever people are saying, you know, yeah, technical victory, but moral. To give a football analogy: loss. the ball was well over the line. We didn't need goal line technology. The ball was in the back of the net, nestling in that onion bag. We didn't need uh, any VAR or anything. It was. But if you're going to use that analogy, it's like the John Stones goal line clearance against Liverpool. 
Yeah, there was a bit, uh, uh, most of the ball was over the line, but there was a bit uh, that wasn't. And that was UEFA's bit, the bit that wasn't. And, and in the end, in the end, of all the substantive charges that were brought at the start of this, apart from Article 56, which was brought at the end of the investigation process, we escaped punishment on, uh, and were found cleared we on. We escaped punishment, did we? we didn't it's interesting, isn't it, guys, that um, in the whole case against us that uh, Cass were adjudicating, you can talk about City being obstructive and you can talk about the admissibility of the emails and everything else, but the, the, the core of it was whether City had inflated sponsorship revenue. And um, Stefan Borson made the point that when Cass dealt with that in the document, the phrase no evidence was used 12 times. Yes. And he made the second point that people should take out of this is that even if you granted credence to some of the theories regarding whether or not City did this, just because you talk or appear to talk about it doesn't mean you did it. And this is the thing, <laughs> this is the thing that people can't get their heads around, especially certain journalists, that even where emails made it look like City were discussing or thinking about doing something that appeared nefarious, this, this is not evidence that they, they actually did it. Whereas when they saw these um, emails and thought that uh, various comments looked like they were hovering on the edge of planning something nefarious, you can't make the leap, even if you accept that, even if you believe it, you can't make the, le the, the assumption that these things were then carried out. And that's where this continued repetition of the phrase, no evidence, no evidence, no evidence, came in. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. It was a two-to-one majority verdict. It wasn't unanimous. And I think some people, you know, the naysayers, they leap at that and say, we were lucky. It could have gone the other way. You know, uh, it was only two-to-one. It was a, a you know, judge's decision. Can you, can you explain what that means? Well, I can try. I mean, so people have assumed it's a two-to-one. We're not exactly sure. But um, in some parts of the judgment, it says the majority of the panel were satisfied or majority of the panel weren't satisfied. Uh, in other parts of the judgment, he said the panel was satisfied or the panel weren't satisfied. So, uh, again, there were three arbitrators on there. And, you know, in any, in any legal judgment, you may get a dissenting opinion. Kaz doesn't publish dissenting opinions. So we don't know who dissented, if anyone did, or why. So, so the temp temptation is to assume that uh, UEFA's pick, Professor Haas, uh, was, was the dissenting opinion. Yeah, you know, we can't make that assumption. We, can, we cannot make that assumption because we don't know. Um, we, we also, I don't know, um, we don't know what they dissented on. You know, did, did, did two of them say, oh, that, that's definitely happened, and one said it definitely didn't happen, or did two of them say that definitely happened, did one say, I'm not quite so sure. You know, I, I don't want to say it definitely happened, I don't want to say it didn't happen. So, so you know, we, we don't know. We're making an assumption about the quantitative decision. We're, we're making a huge leap from a qualitative point of view, that the dissenting voice was, no, you're wrong. Because it could be, I'm not sure you're right, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, thank you. This is not the US Supreme Court where you get to read the dissenting opinions. Um, no, no, no. But uh, Colin, could we uh, go on to what happened next? Because uh, oh, yeah. Der, Der Spiegel weren't finished, were they? No, 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 Der Spiegel certainly weren't finished. I mean, 
it, it would take us probably half a day to go through the full cash judgment. But one of the things that, that UEFA made its case on was uh, they were trying to allege that Simon Pearce was the instigator of many of these deals. So basically, he was pulling the string. Now, now Simon Pearce is an executive, uh, non-executive director at City, but clearly has a hand in affairs. Simon Pearce is also a key member of the um, Executive Affairs Authority of the Abu Dhabi government. The Executive Affairs Authority is basically a, a, an agency which sits off the ruling Executive Council, and, and it's the umbrella organisation for, I think, six or seven different committees or agencies which, which basically supply the strategic direction for, for, for life in Abu, Abu Dhabi's kind of future and um, way of life. So, so, so the implication was, I, I think they were trying to, quite clear what they were trying to prove, but m maybe about the related party, because if, if it could be shown that Simon Pearce is telling Etihad what to do, uh, and telling Etihad what to do, and doing it on behalf of City, that, that there's, a, there's probably a great case for making this um, a kind of a, a manufactured arrangement, I guess, that, that wasn't a true sponsorship arrangement. Now, now, to me, it's a bit specious, uh, and the judgment showed it to be a bit specious. But it, it, in his witness statement, Pierce emphatically denied, and Cass took him at his word, that he had arranged any contracts between City and the sponsors. Okay, so basically, what they were saying was he could not force Etihad to make an arrangement with City to pay them £67.5 million pounds a year or you know, 220 million he couldn't sign the contracts he wasn't etihad he wasn't abu dhabi united group he wasn't etisala he might be the middleman but he can't foot it's what we just talked about isn't it the fact that he might be seen to be doing something doesn't mean he did it so, so uefa made great play of simon pierce is the man you know the puppet master pulling all the strings here and he he denied that he was and to spiegel the day after came out released uh, an email where Pierce is, uh, I think, talking to the um, commercial director at Etihad about a mistake in the payments. And he's basically saying, I owe you an amount of money. Now, they were trying to suggest that Pierce had perjured himself in his evidence to Cass. Because in saying, I don't arrange these contracts, here he was in an email saying, well, here you are, I owe you this amount of money. I mean, it was laughable, really. Because, as I say, it covers the same principle of, because he said, I owe you the money. Didn't mean it, it was, if you took that literally, it was coming out of his pocket. What he meant was, as part of the sponsorship agreements, Etihad had paid X, he should have paid Y, or something like that, and therefore, he, Etihad were owed a certain amount of money. Pierce, as the middleman, was basically saying, there's been an accounting error, and that money needs to go back to you. He used the term I owe. But, but to, again, to read into that anything nefarious, when he'd given evidence to say he wasn't the arranger, is is quite ludicrous and, and takes the meaning of inference to a whole new level, I think. Colin, um, one question that people had when this new email was link, linked from um, Der Spiegel, which was basically suggesting that uh, Pierce had, had lied to Cass, people were asking, and I don't think I've, I've gotten a, a good answer to this so far, but they were saying, is it not possible for City to either reclaim the hacked emails or to demand that they be deleted because if that's not possible what's to stop Der Spiegel publishing a new leaked email every week for from now until the end of time yeah um i don't know what legal path city can or will take on this as i say the portuguese judge was quite clear that these should not be used whereas swiss law overrode him 
I don't know about German law. People have potentially said, yeah, we should sue for our property. We should sue, I mean, in, in the smallest legal term of the word, for our property back. I, I don't know whether that's feasible or not. I don't know whether it has a bearing on, on the uh, Rui Pinto case or the Rui Pinto case say has a bearing on our, our legal options for that. So I, I, I don't know what will happen, basically, in terms of what happens with emails. But, you know, think about this. De Spiegel had 5.5 million documents and all they could produce was seven. Uh, and they had to doctor two of those to make them look worse than they were. Even David Conn. I spoke to David Conn at a football writers festival event. I think it was last about a year ago. And we were talking about this. So it must have been after they came out. And even he said, hey, I just don't see the smoking. There's no smoking gun in there. I spoke to um, our friend Kevin Maguire on this. Kevin's pretty well regarded in the kind of football finance industry. Ray, of course, you were there, of course, Ray. Kevin said, there's nothing in those emails. So they had, how long have they had those emails? Five years? Four years? Five years? I don't know. And they searched through them. They got a whole team working on them. And all they could find were those six emails. There was no smoking gun in there. Absolutely not. So they can produce one a day for the next, you know, however, to the end of time, till the sun explodes into a black hole or whatever suns do. But nothing is going to change unless they can find... An absolute smoking gun in there, I don't think, which they would have found by now, nothing is going to change. No one's going to go back to CAS and, and reopen all this. Yeah, I was just wondering whether yourself or Ray were, were aware of any other cases where emails were stolen that formed part of a court case, and then do the offended party not have any recourse to insist that these stolen emails be deleted i mean it, it seems a bit odd that someone can hack your system steal your emails bring allegations against you and you have no way to silence them if you follow I, what I, i'm I, saying yeah but i don't it's it's this thing about journalism as well so and journalists who you know they've got them by whatever means uh i, I obviously don't know enough about this and obviously german law can be different to swiss law to French law and to UK law or English law. So I, I don't know uh, anything about it, not even enough about that um, to be able to comment. You get your property back. You'd like to think that. Yeah, it, it may be that that just to, to try to give an answer to that, that it, it will only come with the prosecution of Mr. Pinto that anything like that um, might happen, I guess. Well, he's, he's passed on his stolen property. I mean, you might be right there, Mike, because one, if in Portugal, this, if, if this is prosecuted and, and the stuff is stolen from City and uh, in, in Portugal, they say that's been stolen. You're going in the clink for a long, a very long time and you must return um, the stolen property. Maybe that has a knock on effect. And that means whoever is given that stolen property to has to return it. But we, we've seen many, I'm sure we've seen many cases where there's been big data dumps of hacked stolen emails from all sorts of different bodies and then journalists get you know around the world get their hands on them and then they dis- disseminate it and and they come out with their own stories we've seen that with the guardian and we've seen it in america i think if you look at mr julian assange and some others in america um so and they never give them back and then no one makes them you know, no one tries to make them give them back they just ask for them they don't get them and then they just let it go so i've got a feeling that I don't think there's much city can do about it. And how can you trust that someone's deleted all um, the evidence? You know, it's just like having a file. How can you make sure that the 20 people who've got it have all deleted it? You can't.
If only Hillary Clinton was in one case. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the other point is um, why didn't um, the Spiegel... you know, again, we come back to this point that UEFA were clearly relying on the stories in De Spiegel, approached De Spiegel for the emails and asked for them, and De Spiegel refused. And I'm guessing that that would be a legal issue if they handed them over, because then UEFA would be in receipt of stolen goods, and um, UEFA would be perpetrating that. Yeah, yeah. They'd mean encouraging um, illegality then, wouldn't they? One of the, in, the very, very interesting observations by Stefan Borson was that after pouring through this um, document, I don't think that he had even finished reading it when comments were issued on Twitter by certain journalists. And he said that he found it extraordinary. He praised the amazing legal minds of these journalists who were able to <laughs> yeah. digest a, a 93-page document of quite some considerable complexity in record time and were able not only to digest it but to draw conclusions from it and then put them out on Twitter. Were all those conclusions pointing in the same direction from all these different journalists? I mean, you know, is, it's just a, is it just a coincidence that you know, let's say 10 different journalists managed to speed read this in record time. I mean, I'll be honest, I, I give up after about eight pages. Uh, I'd, I'd had enough and I just looked, uh, uh, I went to the back and looked at the conclusions because I'd, I'd had enough. But then in, in, in the amount of time it took me to read eight pages, several of these journalists had all managed to speed read it uh, and, and decipher it and understand it. Um, and uh, okay, I'll, I'll go on a little aside. Knowing from what we know about most of them journalists, they didn't understand, they couldn't understand it, they haven't got the capacity to, and then they all seem to come to the same conclusion. It's uh, it's just the coincidence of uh, the mother of all coincidences. That is what I don't get. Okay, is the journalists a lot? Quite a few of these journalists. Okay, they're grasping. They they got the fingernails on the cliff of this, um, and they're about to fall off into the abyss, and they're still having a go. And the thing is. If it was the other way around and us fans were grasping for in, in, into thin air, they would be laying into us, yeah? Um, they'd be having to go as fans, calling us all sorts of names for trying to hold on to something that doesn't exist. And yet when it's their turn, they're all you know, moral and high and mighty that they're doing the right thing. There's very little for them to hold on to. Some of them have had the... The sense just to ignore, you know, just to get off to, uh, of Twitter and social media for a couple of days, let it go, and not try and win a fight that's already been lost. Some of them have had the sense to do that. Others, like your Duncan Castles and a few others of uh, Nick Harris's of, of this world, they will continue to keep fighting that fight when there's nothing left to fight and there's nothing they're going to win. Well, guys, it's been quite a long one. Is there anything else that we have um, failed to mention in what we've talked about so far? I just think, were there any questions that? Yeah, okay, okay. weren't answered by. One of one of the points that uh, Duncan Duncan Castles uh, made was that City had more or less agreed to certain things. He he pointed out that City agreed that um, UEFA had a case to bring, and that seemed to sort of fly in fly in the face a little bit of what uh, Ferran Soriano had been saying. Uh, prior to this, um, was that an admission that you saw in the in the document, Colin? Well, I think I, I said this that one of the things in the CAS document said that they could understand why UEFA brought the case, but it was a, a, a weak case. So basically, we had 
Well, we, we talked about having ir irrefutable evidence of our innocence, and we produced that evidence eventually, and were, um, you know, found not guilty of having made these payments. So, um, you know, I, I don't understand why, how on the one hand, Kaz can say UEFA had um, good grounds for bringing this case and then say they didn't make it. You know, they didn't make the case. And, and, and they drew inferences from these emails that they uh, were not entitled to. It seems kind of a little bit contradictory. My next question, Colin, is um, do you believe that it is true that's that if City had presented all of the evidence to UEFA that they presented to CAS, that uh, this could have all been avoided? Or, or are you, like me, a little bit cynical about that? Well, CAS suggested that, that, that had we presented all the evidence we presented to them to the adjudicatory chamber, that the possibility is we'd have been found not guilty. City clearly had their own reasons for not doing that. I don't know what those were. Maybe we'll find out in time. And um, I mean, CAS are uh, extremely naive if they, th if they thought, think that um, UEFA would have taken all the evidence that we'd given to CAS and come up with a different judgment. I think that's naivety. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd agree with you, Ray. I think that City probably had very good reason to believe that they wouldn't have got um, a fair judgment, even if they had supplied all of the information that they ended up supplying to CAS. But um, the fact I think is... that would have opened a door. It depends on what yeah. City thought UEFA's motives were. Were they generally trying to investigate something, or were they yep. just fishing for evidence? And, and that's why that's why my conclusion to this, Colin, is even if if I had been reading this document and I wasn't a City fan, and I you know I've been following the whole thing and, and saw that City had uh, withheld information from UEFA, but then supplied uh, CAS, and then got the win. You know, my conclusion is well played, guys. Well played. <laughs> City will be playing in the Champions League next season, so you've got to say. She played it well. I mean, it was a bit of a, a bit of an Aguero moment in some ways, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, um, indeed, indeed. It went to the final whistle, but yeah, we 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 always felt we had a case, and we stuck to that one. And, and I think there were deep suspicions about UEFA's motives when it came to. We always said when it came to an independent panel, they were confident. City were confident they would find us not guilty, effectively, and that's what happened. Okay, guys. Okay. Well, that was absolutely fascinating uh, to listen to Colin's perspective on this and um, thankful also to the, for the um, questions and the insights from Ray as well. But I fear that it might just be stretching the attentiveness of our listeners if we go on too much more on this. So I think it's probably a good idea to, to finish it up here, guys. We got the win and that's the important thing. The result is that we are free now to follow our ambitions in the transfer window if window is is the correct word anymore and um, if you want to find out and learn a lot more about what city are planning to do in this window i recommend you go over to city fan tv which is uh, ray's channel where he, he will pretty much every day keep you um, updated on everything that city are planning to do could possibly do and are doing in the transfer market now that we've got this monkey off our back but um yeah i think we'll leave it there for this particular uh, pod, guys, we will be back with you pretty shortly. So until then, I guess we better just um, say farewell and express our gratitude to our two contributors. First of all, you have been listening to King of the Kipax writer and City Matters Committee member, Colin Savage. Colin, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. I've got a bit of a sore throat now, but um, yeah, it's been great to be able to get, well, have the time to have a good read of the document. 
and then get my points across. Okay. And also you've been listening to City Fan TV producer Ray. Ray, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's been a pleasure. It's been great to listen at first hand uh, to uh, Colin's uh, dissection of the of the report, uh, not here in a in a condensed version. So it's uh, been a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, guys, you'll be hearing from us at uh, Bolt from the Blue again quite shortly, but we'll finish off for now in the usual way and say, have one on us and up those blues. It's about time that your mind took off